So, finally, after a long wait, about the six, um, Sikhism came out of a historical context. And so, I put a little uh, analogy up on the board. Remember, the, there was a Shramana movement in India because of certain general historical factors, a, uh, perhaps an, an overemphasis on ritualism, a, uh, no problem, a uh, increasingly rigid caste system, and so on. And uh, so you had these movements like Buddhism and Jainism. And many Jain movements, there were dozens, I'm sorry, dozens of Shamana movements where people would leave the cities, get out from under the uh, what they felt to be a somewhat stifling, if not oppressive, uh, social system and ritual system and sort of go out to back to nature and think for themselves and see what they could come up with spiritually. And so Buddhism and Jainism were the most prominent. So similarly, just as Buddhism and Jainism came out of the general historical situation, uh, also Sikhism came out of a historical situation which was very different. And that is that um, when Guru, Guru Nanak was born in 1469, there had been uh, serious Muslim rule in North India, at least, for several centuries. And there was, of course, a lot of tension. Uh, the Muslims and the Hindus, in general, tended to not really be happy with, with each other for various reasons. Uh, the Muslims were perceived, of course, as an oppressive and often violent uh, power that was in many ways disrespecting Hinduism. A lot of things about Hinduism struck the Muslims as uh, exactly why. That's why Muhammad came in the first place to do away with this kind of stuff. And so there's real tension. And uh, so there started to be a movement of what are called sons or saints, uh, people who wanted to rise above this conflict and find something universal, some way that everybody, something that everybody could agree on. And uh, it was within this context of this, just like there was a Shramana movement once, so within this context of these sons that uh, Guru Nanak began to do his thing. So, um, now, Wednesday, last time I showed up here, I read that little poem from Kabir, who is, uh, you know, one of the great Sant poets, 1300s. And Kabir's, uh, that little poem said, like, God is not in the mandir, God is not in the mosque, God is not here, God is not there. Basically, God is only in people like him who do what he does, which I thought was very broad-minded of him. <laughs> so I mean to me it's a typical case of people who kind of come off as being above it all but in their own way I think there's a certain arrogance and a certain uh, narrow mindedness because a lot of people feel that God is in places of worship whether it's a mosque or a mandir a lot of people do find God through various means such as austerity, meditation so on and so forth and so to say that God is not any of these places or any of these processes God is only for people like me who do what I do is an interesting claim Anyway, uh, Kabir, in his own way, was trying to go beyond what he saw as sectarian strife between Hindus and Muslims. And there were others mentioned. Uh, there was a, a person named uh, Namdev, 
Born in 1270 and died in 1350, facts which you will probably remember for the rest of your lives. Um, he was Marathi. He was in Maharashtra, which is basically central western, in the west coast of India, Bombay is in that state. There was another gentleman named Ravi Das, born in 1370 in Varanasi or Benares. And they tended to be against caste. It's very interesting, just as the, the shamana movements were against caste, so these sant movements were also against caste. We've already discussed many times that the bhakti movements tended to want to get past So a lot of people, whenever this caste system got really suffocating and oppressive and obnoxious, uh, people, a lot of people uh, realized that this is obnoxious and uh, wanted to get beyond that. So, and obviously, it's not that everyone born in a Brahmin family is really bright and saintly and wise. And it's not that everyone born in a Sudra family is just wants to do nothing more than work in a, you know, an assembly line and make Chevrolets or something. So, in other words, in terms of people's actual abilities, people's actual abilities and so on, it doesn't always go according to birth. And that's why, as we mentioned earlier in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says many times that your varna, your social position, depends on your nature, depends on the qualities you have, your propensities. It's not by birth. So because the caste system, a hereditary caste system, will always, to some extent, go against nature, people will naturally resist it. And so the sons were also resisting this. But then again, social hierarchy tends to reimpose itself. So it's a, it's a funny world we live in. Anyway... So, just some simple things about the Sikhs. You probably read there are about 20 million of them, uh, most of them in the Punjab and in other places of India. Um, so, I want to go over a little bit of the history. We're going to talk about what their specific beliefs were, but I want to go over a little bit of the history because the history is very interesting for one reason, because it's so violent. And, you know, there's a lot of big movies that have violence. So... Uh, I want to go over the history. Yes, I mean, I, I'm not saying it's good that they were violent or, or there was violence, but it is interesting. Now, Guru Nanak himself is an interesting figure. He, he, liked, he uh, was born in a, not a high-class family. He wasn't born as a Brahmin or even a prince. I think he was a tailor family. And uh, he was obviously very spiritually inclined. He was attracted by the Sant movement. In fact, he included, or his followers included, a lot of Kabir's poetry in the uh, Guru Granth Sahib. The word Granta, by the way, in Sanskrit comes from a, uh, the Sanskrit Granth means to tie or to bind. And so in the old days, they used to write books by hand and tie them you know, with strings. And, and, and so, therefore, something which was bound together was a Granta. It was a book. So that's where the word for book comes from. And so the Guru Granth Sahib, it's like the Lord guru as a book. Anyway, so this most important scripture of the Sikhs includes many poems of, of Kabir and other, other saint, uh, I'm sorry, sant poets. So uh, Guru Nanak began to preach a type of monotheism which was uh, influenced by the Muslims in, in, in this sense. And uh, of course Guru Nanak even went to Mecca. So he obviously took Islam seriously. He didn't become a Muslim, of course. Uh, in fact, he was a little more on the Hindu side, if you look at the practices. But he took, it, he took some aspects of <coughs> Islam seriously. Now, if you know Islam, you know that, uh, at least in fundamentalist Islam, 
sort of traditional fundamentalist Islam, one of the things they really get bothered about, perhaps more than anything, is the idea of uh, what they call shirk, which is attributing what they feel are material qualities to God, such as drawing a picture or carving an icon, a so-called idol. In, uh, in rock and roll music, it's good to be an idol, but not in religion, you know, according to standard American English. So, anyway, uh, so they're, they're totally against this. Remember, this is Islam, you can't even draw pictures, not even of the Prophet, and, and much less of God. So here we have India, where there are these visible icons. Even today in India, you go on any corner, there's a little mandir, a little shrine, you'll find deities. And so uh, Hinduism, perhaps, is the most visual religion of all the major world religions. It's extremely visual. Extremely visual. And, uh, and Islam is the least visual, you could say. So we've got a, we've got a match here. So therefore, you find Guru Nanak saying that uh, everything visual about Hinduism, we're not going to accept. He's going to accept all kinds of things, even the vegetarianism for the most part. Although, you know, there are later stories that uh, he liked his deer meat roasted or something. But, but for the most part, even today in Sikh temples, they serve vegetarian food. And there is a strong vegetarian uh, element within historical Sikhism. And they're going to follow the Sikhs uh, to this day, observe Hindu festivals like Deepavali, the festival of Ram. They use the term guru. Uh, there, there are many different ways in which they uh, tended to, they, they defended Hindu Brahmins in Kashmir when, when uh, Sikhism militarized. One of the issues that inspired them to militarize was the defense of Hindu Brahmins in Kashmir. So there is definitely a strong Hindu connection Although, if you read the book, if you actually were pious enough to do the reading assignment and not merely glance at it to answer the questions, you will know that, um, anyway, there's this debate about whether they're Hindus or not Hindus or Hindus and Muslims or neither of their own religion. I mean, obviously, sociologically, it's a different religion now. But, but on, the, on the Muslim side, apart from all the obvious Hindu connections, on the Muslim side, uh, Guru Nanak kind of, he kind of bought into this idea of not being visual. And so therefore, uh, the Lord doesn't come down in the avatar. It incarnate, because obviously if God incarnates, God's visible in his incarnation, such as Rama or Krishna, and so on. And there are many Puranic stories of Shiva coming to the world. Everybody comes down once in a while to, you know, say hello and greet their worshippers. So... So basically, Guru Nanak is doing away with all this visual stuff. No avatars. You know, you can imagine like a little sign with a red circle and a line through it, you know. Have a picture of Krishna or something. No avatars. And also, um, and no temple worship. So the deeds are gone because these things were not only rejected by Muslims, they basically went nuts over these things. They just went absolutely berserk over these things. They couldn't stand it. And so... Uh, if you wanted to present a message which had any hope at all, would have any traction whatsoever in terms of bringing people together beyond sectarian strife in India, then if you had the visual stuff, that was a deal breaker. Incarnations, 
I don't mean to say that Guru Nanak really believed in all these things, but strategically removed them. Uh, I'm simply saying that uh, his concern was, as Kabir's concern was, let's bring people together, let's uh, you know, try to unite everyone. And even Akbar, even Akbar, the emperor, is going to take a shot at it. Remember Akbar, where he, uh, he starts his own religion, which is divine faith. So various people around India at this time feel much as many people in America feel today. Okay, there are many religions, but let's not fight over religion. It's all the same God or whatever. And everybody just live in peace. So there are a lot of people in India that who were educated, all kinds of people that weren't so educated. There are many people that felt that way, like, what's all this fighting about? There's only one God. So Guru Nanak was one of those people. And anything visual was a deal breaker with the Muslims, so he kind of, it's not there. So it, it's sort of, it's almost like non-visual Hinduism. Take out all the visible stuff and keep a lot of the Hindu stuff, and there you go. And he, I mean, it's interesting because the Muslims considered the Sikhs to be Hindus. But of course, if, uh, you remember from your reading that... Um, that the Muslims kind of like anyone that's not Muslim is a Hindu. If, if you're from India and you're not Muslim, you're a Hindu. It was, uh, anyway, that was their way of looking at it. So, so that's the general historical climate. That's the general historical climate. And Guru Nanak, he goes to Mecca. And remember, uh, the Muslims have their five basic principles. You profess, you know, you that. Allah, that whole thing they do that uh, there's no God but God or but Allah and Muhammad is the prophet. So you profess that, you pray, you give charity, you fast on Ramadan, and you try to go to Mecca at least once in your life on pilgrimage. And those are the five basic things that Muslims do. So Guru Nanak got his five. You know, he goes to Mecca and he thinks, well, let, let's have five of our own. So one of them is the same, profess, which is the name, an emphasis on chanting the names of God singing the names of God, which was also, by the way, the emphasis of Chaitanya, which we'll talk about later, the whole Krishna movement, which emphasized chanting God's name. Yes? Who are they considering God? Whose names are they chanting? That's a very good question. Uh, of course, in Punjabi, Lord, God, and so on. And in the real world, Sikhs sometimes, you know, they, they like Ram and so on. So, uh, Neela, you've been in India. What, what have you seen? Um, I, I've heard that Jacob yeah, names of Krishna, names of Ram. It's interesting because we know about those names. What's that? Well, Guru Govinda. Govinda is the name of Krishna. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're referring to Krishna Govinda, but, but not necessarily to the other topics. Although it's interesting because one, one thing I wanted to say about the Sikhism, at least in this early historical phase, is that it's poetic. Guru Nanak is himself is a poet, and many of the first gurus were poets, and the Guru Granth Sahib is a compilation of their poetry and poetry of earlier sons like Kabir and so on. It's poetic, it's certainly devotional, it's certainly concerned with loving God, but it's not philosophical. It's not philosophical. We're not gonna we're not gonna find from the gurus anything like a philosophical treatise. They're not gonna buy into the whole Vedanta program. So it's not philosophical. And if you're not really concerned with philosophy, then the fact that you're chanting Krishna's name and Ram's name and observing holy days, and we only know about these people because they came to the world, but you don't believe that God does come to the world, whatever. I mean, you don't worry about things like that because... So that, and, and there's not really a serious 
philosophical explanation, like God cannot come to the world or would not come to the world for these reasons. It's not like that. It's just... Uh, it's devotional and it's poetic, but there's not anything like a rigorous philosophical explanation of it. It's just more devotional and poetic. So, uh, you profess the name of God, you pray, you give charity, you bathe, and you save up. Uh, oh, serve. That's save on century. You, you serve people, serve humanity. And then, of course, later they come up with another five. So, any questions so far? These are sort of general points about how this thing got started. Sikhism. Yes? Keep clean. Keep clean. So, um, let's see where we go from here. Um, now, Guru Nanak, uh, when he passed away, 1539, there's this issue that always comes up. What do you do when your charismatic founder flees? Just like we, we read uh, and talked about Buddhism. When Buddha passed away, there was, it was a big issue. What do we do now? And they had an assembly to figure out where we go from here. Same thing when, when Jesus was no longer there. It, it's a major issue in any religion. When your charismatic founder is not there anymore, where do you go from here? Routinization of charisma. It's a big issue. So, uh, Guru Nanak chose his successor, Guru Angad. Angad in Sanskrit means limb or body. So because this person was so close to Guru Nanak, like a limb of his body, uh, they called him Angad. So Guru Angad, and his major contribution was to change the alphabet. So basically he just kept the program going. I mean, he, he, he sort of compiled his Guru's writings. That was important and, and wrote them in a way that people could read them. So... Guru Nanak's gone, there's this great concern to stay connected to Guru Nanak. Let's write, let's make sure everybody has a copy of what he said and what he taught, his poems and so on. But not much changes. Then, uh, now, another important issue, the, the third guru is Guru Amar. A very important issue is the early history of, of Sikhism really plays out in, uh, in relationship to and often in violent opposition to the Mughals. Because Guru Nanak passes away in 1539 and the, the Mughal invasion of India was 1526. And it takes a while for the Mughals to kind of really get set up, set up shop, you know, get their internet working and everything. So it takes a while to get set up. There's a transition. So that means that, that the Mughal Empire in India begins just at the time that Guru Nanak's leaving, passing away from this world. And so, the first few hundred years of, of um, a Sikh history are really in relation to the Mughals, because their Punjab is north of Delhi. You know, it's north of Delhi and part of the, to the west. And so it's not that far from Delhi. Delhi is a seat of power. So it's not that far away. And uh, so... Fortunately for the Sikhs, the first great Mughal emperor who really has some serious contact with them is Akbar. And Akbar is a guy who's kind of in the same line. He's in the same line of business as Guru Nanak. He wants to unite people, stop the sectarian strife. So Akbar can totally relate to these people. Yeah, that's really cool what you're doing. We should get the religions together. So Akbar goes to visit the uh, third guru, Amar, 
And uh, let's see. Yeah, he uh, gave him some. He, he gave him some villages because villages had to pay taxes. So to give someone a village meant that all the taxes from that village would go to your organization. So Akbar goes there, likes it, gives them gifts. Everybody's happy. There's a great relationship between the Mughal emperor, who wants to bring religions together and get past the, all the sectarian stuff, and the Sikhs, who at that point are very new and still in the spirit of Guru Nanak. So everything's fine. Then, uh, the next after Amar, is, uh, well, something else happened, actually, and that is, at a certain point, um, they make this guru thing hereditary. Actually, Guru uh, Amar did that. Uh, so you have Guru Nanak, and then he chooses Angad, who's just a really great disciple, and the next one is Amar, but Amar decides that he wants someone in his family to be the next guru. I mean, think of the Khalifas. The Khalifas, which, which, you know, there's a whole debate, like whether it's hereditary or whatever, and it became hereditary. So, uh, so that itself is a big change. Because as soon as you make, and I think in some ways a disastrous change, just historically, because when you make guruship, and guruship means you're the spiritual head, you're in charge of this religion, when it's hereditary, what if some, what if the next one is a lemon? You're kind of stuck with someone in your, in your family. What if someone... In other words, the criteria to be a guru is not spiritual anymore. It's genetic. It's genetic. Guru Nanak himself chose Angad because of his spiritual qualifications, as Guru Nanak perceived them. But now, uh, even if someone else is spiritually the best, it's, you need to have that genetic qualification. And I think historically religions start to get into big trouble when they replace spiritual qualifications with genetic and uh, qualifications. Another thing that does is, it's like, this is supposed to be caste-less, like no caste, but as soon as you start a hereditary leadership, guess what you've got? You've got a caste. You've got a ruling caste. So it's interesting, and this is a general question, that, I mean, how spiritual a society can you really create in this world? And you see this gap, you always see it in every religion, this is not just a Sikh thing. You have a founder, whether it's a Jesus or a Buddha or, or Krishna or a, uh, a Guru Nanak, and these leaders have the power to start a new spiritual thing because they, they're really special in some way even a Mohammed. But what happens is, later generations aren't exactly on that level, and sort of hu- all these human desires and human tendencies just start to seep back in, like social hierarchy, and someone wants to be on top of someone else, and just being corrupted by power and money, and politics, as we're going to see, they get into big-time politics in this particular enterprise. It all, it all seeps back in, and there's a periodic reform, these religious boom-bust cycles, where it starts out real pure, everyone is sincere, and then gradually, because it's kind of got something going for it spiritually, it's successful, and the success corrupts people, and then there's a reform, and the reform is so successful, it again attracts a lot of power and money, and then you get another corruption cycle. 
And as far as I've studied history, it just seems to be what we're stuck with here on Earth. It doesn't mean you can't have a spiritual thing going, but it, there are going to be boom-bust cycles, just like the economy. Anyway, so... Uh, now, the fourth guru, who's the first hereditary one, is Guru Ramdas, 1574 to 1581. Dates which are now emblazoned forever in your mind. So, uh, he also gets a gift from Akbar. Akbar goes back up into Punjab and, you know, gives him more gifts. So everything's still very... Everybody's happy in this Mughal-Sikh relationship. But then, this trouble starts with the first hereditary... I'm sorry, the second hereditary guru, Arjun. Arjun, uh, I put him in, he's the game-changer. Something very different starts to happen in the Sikh religion. Remember... This is a group of people that want to unify the religions. They just want to be spiritual. They want to love God. Uh, they want to sing the name of God forever. And, uh, you know, study this beautiful poetry about loving God. But now we get Arjun. And because they've attracted a lot of people, let, let, let's, I'll read you something about Arjun from a history, standard history book. The fifth guru, Arjun, was an excellent organizer. An excellent organizer who spread the faith among large numbers of people. You could also think of Paul of Tarsus. All over the Punjab. So it's spreading. And there's organization, which means all kinds of, you know, vice president and assistant to the vice president and this and that. There's, there's a structure now, a hierarchy, and it's spreading. There's a lot of people. There's power. There's money. This is a different situation now. He also made it, his great contribution as a spiritual and intellectual leader was to compile the Adi Grunt, uh, the Adi Grunt, the first book. Adi Grunt literally means the first original book. By selecting verses from the works of his four predecessors and also from those of Hindu and Muslim saints. Hindu and Muslim saints. So they still got this spirit of, you know, this ecclesiastical spirit. And then he appointed, uh, in order to put the finances of his organization, I mean, Guru Nanak's not thinking about finances. He's just a saint traveling around. But now we've got finance issues because you've got a big organization. So he offered to appoint Masans, a class of nobility. Bye-bye, caste-free life. So now we've got a hereditary guru system. Now we've got a nobility. Why are they noble? Because they can afford to be noble. They, these are the big donors. Whether you're a big donor to the Democrat or Republican Party or to this early Sikh movement, if you're a big donor, you get a seat at the head table. That's just, that's life. So, they would agree to give 10% of their income to the Sikh punt. Punt in Sanskrit is when the Sanskrit word punt, path, spelled like the English word P-A-T-H. So they call it the punt, the path. So in practice, in practice, the Masans collected funds from people in their quote-unquote jurisdiction. So we've got regional jurisdictions now. We've got nobles, a noble class, over these jurisdictions. They've got money. Presumably their jurisdictions are hereditary also, just as guruship is hereditary. Right? No castes. Uh, so... So, anyway, I've explained all that. So, um, now, Guru Arjan. Guru Arjan, in the middle of all this, what is he doing in the middle of all this? Is he just living in a hut somewhere, meditating? 
as the rich people manage their regions? No. He's going to get his sort of his little, uh, well, I don't mean this pejoratively, but he's going to get kind of a little Vatican going. Arjun gave his court a royal look. He gave his court a royal look. In other words, he starts to understand himself as a type of monarch. This type of monarch. He's also a religious leader. Hereafter, the gurus, so from Arjun, Arjun on, after him, the gurus would have gallant horses, uh, caparisoned elephants, you know, elephants with all this jewelry on them and banners and everything, and liveried retainers. So we've got royalty. We've got Sikh royalty. The guru is the royal monarch of Sikhism. And Arjun thinks this is, yeah, this is a great thing. This is what we need. And you've got a, the, you know, you've got, so you've got a king. You've got the, sort of the dukes and earls who are the masans, and they're the rich people that control different areas. So, so where's this all going to go now? It's going to, this is all going to uh, end up very, uh, in a very ugly way. What happens is that, um, meanwhile, meanwhile, back down in the Mogul Ranch, uh, Akbar has died, and as you almost, as you almost invariably find when a, a Mogul leader dies or, or one of the Muslim leaders of India dies, there's just like a total <coughs> murderous brawl. This big melee breaks out to see who gets to be the next ruler, and you know. It's like one of those you know, old Cali movies where there are you know, a big brawl in the barn, people throwing people through the plate glass windows and stuff like that. So it's, uh, there's this big brawl going on down there to see who the next Mughal emperor is going to be. And uh, so the person who actually took over was Jahangir. We talked about Jahangir. His son, Shah Jahan, will build the Taj Mahal. This is Jahangir who was uh, deeply in love with his wife, and, and he was an alcoholic. She was really shrewd, and she kind of took over. So anyway, this is Jahangir. Now, the problem is that a, uh, there's a guy named Prince Kusrav, who is the son of Jahangir. He wants to be the king. It's like, get out of the way, Dad. So Kusrav wants to be the king, and he apparently is willing to you know, do in his dad. So his father, you know, is going to fight back, try to get rid of his son. And so the son flees. And the son flees where? To the royal court of Arjun. Because Arjun, uh, by this time, you know, he has power. He controls, this, he controls the Punjab in a sense. So he flees because Akbar had a great relationship with the Sikhs. And Khusrav remembers this. Yeah, you know, that grandpa Akbar was the big emperor. You know, he was really tight with these people. And I think even Kustrov once accompanied his grandfather one time. And so, yeah, they'll help me. So he goes up there, explains the situation that he's, you know, he's fighting to, first of all, save his life. And eventually wants to take over the Mughal Empire and get rid of dad. So he asks Arjun for help. Like, you know, can you give me some money for now? I need to, because when you're fleeing, you've got an army. You, you know, it costs money to flee with a little army. So... He wants some money, and Arjun decides to support him. Yeah, I'll help you out. Now, Jahangir is not at all happy about this. Because here they are fighting this murderous fight to see who gets power. And these Sikhs up there in the Punjab, they're helping out 
this rebel, this traitor. They're giving money to the traitor. So uh, Jahangir is very unhappy. He captured, he arrested Guru Arjan, fined him 200,000 rupees, which in those days was like millions and millions of dollars. It was a huge amount of money. And orders him to strike off certain verses from their holy book, the Grunt. So he, he really wants, he's really going to squash this guy. And uh, the Guru Arjan refuses. He's charged with treason and ordered to be tortured to death. This is number five, Arjan. So he wanted to dabble in politics. He wanted to be a king. He wanted a royal court. He appointed nobles under him. He sort of decided to try his hand at mogul politics, internecine mogul politics, and now he's in deep trouble. So he uh, he was charged with treason. So he was 42 years old at this point. He refused to change their holy book, refused to change the holy book, which he compiled, by the way. I mean, it didn't even exist before him. He, he just really thought, no, this is the book. So he was made to stand on the hot desert sands in the summer heat. And if you know India, the summer in that part of India is just like ridiculously hot. I mean, it gets to be 120 degrees. It's like unbelievably hot. And he was made to stand in summer on the sand and basically just until he died, until he starved or just died from the elements. Now, according to the... Now, to show you how much Arjun was really into this new definition of guru, not a, just a sant, poet, and bhakta devoted to God, but as a royal leader of the, of, of the Sikh community. Sikh tradition remembers that his dying words to his son, the next guru. Remember, this is hereditary. This is, you know, the, the king is dead, long live the king. So his last words to his son are, uh, sit fully armed on your throne and maintain an army to the best of your ability. These are the last words. And the son is Hargovinda, name of Krishna, Govinda. So, now we have guru number six. What does he do? Uh, at the time of his consecration, he had two swords hanging by his side, Pedi and Medi, representing his spiritual and temporal authority. So we've got a, this is a very new ball game, so to speak. Uh, this started out, coming out. Now, what happens when you do this? What happens when you combine, like, uh, Pedi and Medi? You, you combine temporal authority, which is the old Christian word, in other words, power in this world military, political, economic power in this world with spiritual authority. Number one, the first thing that's going to happen is that this movement is going to ultimately succeed, but only as a regional ethnic movement. I mean, consider Buddhism. When Buddha or Jainism, even though they, let's say, got the patronage of Ashok, perhaps because of it, but anyway, they never really got into this idea that the leader of the Buddhists or the leader of the Jains is a political and military leader. And think of the Varna system for all of its foibles that you have a Brahmin class and a separate Kshatriya class. You have a, you have a spiritual Brahmins who are supposed to be, when they're sort of on their game and lucid, they're supposed to be spiritual leaders, 
And then you have a military class, a political class, the Kshatriyas. In the Sikh community, they're going to combine these things, just like the Khalifa, the Caliph, the Caliph, from the Muslims. It didn't work for the Muslims, and, I mean, it was actually, when, when, the, when the Caliphate fell, back around in, in the middle of the 1200s, and Baghdad was overrun by the Mongols, actually, the, the, the uh, same people who were going to become the Mughals in India, so apparently they were really uh, pretty strong back then. Uh, the Muslim world gets uh, fractured, it gets divided up. But in the Sikh religion, you have this, this formal claim that the guru is both the temporal and the spiritual leader. And so at his consecration, he has two swords. He has two swords. Um, so, uh, it, now this, now imagine Hargovinda. Hargovinda, who uh, his dad, his father, who I'm sure he was very attached to, uh, was killed in a very nasty way by the Mughals. So he, I mean, this obviously changes your psychology. Arjun was already moving, you know, he already wanted to be a monarch with all the royal paraphernalia. Now his son sees his father killed in this way by the Mughals. So what does he do? He changed the ways a Sikh should live, encouraging them to give up vegetarianism and take up hunting and bodybuilding. So, hunting and bodybuilding, and we need red meat, you know, we need to really, uh, we got to go out and kill people, our enemies. As he grew up, he raised a small army of foot soldiers, 300 cavalry and six gunners. He built a fort, Logar, at Amritsar, uh, and the uh, Akal Tat, God's throne in front of the temple. Anyway, so for all intents and purposes, Guru Hargovinda behaved as head of religion and state, sitting on the throne, rendering justice to the people. During his time, the Sikh society of believers was transformed into a militarist state. So they did not take kindly to what happened to uh, Arjun. They were really unhappy about it. So basically, they militarized. The, the Sikh religion becomes a military community. And uh, then uh, Hargobind took the traditional umbrella signifying sovereignty. If you read the ancient scriptures, Puranas, the kings would have this royal umbrella over them. Actually, it's a parasol. It wasn't just, I mean, umbrella. I mean, well, the word umbrella, like you know, Italian, uh, means like a shader. Parasol for the sun. Parasol, parasol. These are hot countries. So there was, there was this royal umbrella. So he took all this royal Hindu paraphernalia. He was imprisoned by, uh, see who we got now. The Mughals now uh, were down to, still Jahangir, he's still around. So this, this Hargobind is in prison, but the sentence is commuted after a while. And uh, then his successors, Guru Harai and Guru Harkisan, were not warlike. But then, we get to Guru Teg Bahadur, and we got trouble again. So, so after Hargobinda, he's arrested for a while, then we've got uh, two gurus that like, you know, we had enough war, let's just go back to the something. But then, you've got this Guru Teg Bahadur, who was a military-minded person, 
And at that time, the Mughals, he's in 1675, something else is going on. And yes? Uh, we're going to end the game under. Uh, with, with the 10th guru, we're down to number 9, I think, now. So the 10th guru is going to say no more gurus. And then the book's going to become the guru. But another, another big thing, you see, meanwhile, down in Mogul land, we've got, uh, we've got this really bad guy who's a Mogul emperor, Rumze. We talked about him. He is sort of like, I mean, in India, among Hindus, he's remembered as kind of like this, you know, this evil, like an evil character. And, uh, well, there's a reason why they think of him that way. So now we have this Aurangzeb who is a totally born-again, fanatical, no-other-way Muslim. And basically declares war on the other religions in India. He, he's demolishing temples, Hindu temples. He's demolishing gurdwaras, uh, Sikh temples. He's really on a rampage. We talked about Aurangzeb. He spends most of his reign, he reigns for a long time, fighting everybody. He's just fighting everybody. He's just out of control. He's kind of like a maniac. And just fighting everyone. He's constantly at war with everyone. I mean, he kills all his own relatives because he doesn't want competition. I mean, this guy's really out of control. So, for a while, the Sikhs and Mughals kind of made a sort of peace. And after uh, Hargovinda, there were two gurus who were not warlike. But now, Aurangzeb is in town. And therefore, the next guru... Uh, well, I didn't write his name... Uh, Take Bahadur, he gets back into the military thing because Aurangzeb is just demolishing their temples, forced conversions, forcing people to convert to Islam in large numbers. And, uh, and there are Brahmins in Kashmir. There are actually Brahmins in Kashmir who are begging for help. Hindus are coming to the Sikhs who are so militant and asking them for protection. So... Uh, So, uh, Teg Bahadur starts to fight back. He starts to resist Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb ordered the guru, guru to be arrested and produced before him. There he ordered the Guru and his five followers to perform miracles because the people you say that the Guru could do miracles. And, and the Muslims thought this is blasphemy because humans can't do miracles. Only God can do miracles. Uh, either do miracles or convert to Islam. The Guru denied. So the Guru says, I, I don't do miracles. But he refused to convert to Islam. At that point, the emperor's men killed two of the guru's disciples through torture, including boiling alive. I mean, I hope that I'm not psychologically damaging anyone by this course. But uh, I don't dwell on these things or go into a lot of graphic details. Uh, but if you look at Europe at the same time, uh, the Inquisitions, so it was not the most sublime period in history. And essentially, with the Rungzeb and European Inquisitions and witch burnings and things like that, you've got a time when fanatical religions originally coming from the Middle East are really not being nice, to say the least. So the Guru himself was chained and then beheaded on November 11th. Actually, today is, what, 17th? So six days ago was the anniversary of the beheading of this Guru Teg Bahadur. In his dying days, he repeatedly and proudly said, 
Saradiya par sir nadia. A message to his disciples, meaning to give up their lives but never give up their faith. So we have all these Sikh martyrs, one after the other. Now, the next guru is Guru Gobind Singh, the son of Teg Bahadur. His son comes, and this Guru Gobind Singh realized the need for a complete change in the Sikh attitude toward the Mughal government, which cost the lives of his father and grandfather. So now it's the last Guru, Gobinda. He's going to stop the Guru chain and say after this, no more Gurus. Uh, I'm sorry, the next one is. By the way, Singh, I mean, the Sikhs in general share this last name. In India, you have huge communities in all the different regions of India with the same last names. And so this, uh, the Sanskrit word Singha, which becomes written usually as something like that, uh, means lion. So their last name is lion. Most Sikhs, that's what their last name is, Singh. It means lion. Singapore, by the way, is Sanskrit. Singapore, lion city. So anyway... Uh, so, he's, uh, in the meantime, Aurangzeb was such a jerk that he's having all kinds of problems. Because, like in, in, in uh, Maratha, uh, Maharashtra, Maharashtra, which is, that's where Bombay is. Bombay is in, is in the state of Maharashtra. The great, uh, there's this very powerful resistance movement, very powerful, famous resistance movement, freedom fighters, Hindu freedom fighters. And so all over India, people are rebelling against Aurangzeb. And so he's... So this Guru Gobind Singh takes advantage of this and uh, starts fighting back. He says that uh, a brick has to be returned with a stone. And he wants to protect Hindus and Sikhs. Originally, it was to unite everyone, Muslims and Hindus and uh, uh, Guru Nanak even went to Mecca. He's got his five program, you know, his five points and everything. But by this time, it's the Sikhs and the Hindus against the Muslims because the Muslims are just out of control. They're just going crazy and, and persecuting people. So, so it's a very different time. And it's around this time that they come up with these new, the, the new list of five, which are you let your hair grow long so like a warrior, you have a comb in your hair, a sword, and breaches, which apparently, you know, for fighting, you need to really kind of, so to speak, gird yourself. You don't want to, anyway, it's obvious why if you're in the middle of a battle, you want to be tight. And bangles, and, what? What is a bangle and a comb? Well, a bangle apparently is something originally that you used to protect your sword arm. And the comb was just, well, I guess you got long hair and you're in battle, you've got to, you know, I mean, women warriors know about this. So, you know, if you're in a fight, you got to make sure your hair is pinned down. So, anyway, this whole look of the Sikh with the turban, you know, the turban, this long hair, the sword, this militant thing, this is not Guru Nanak. Guru Nanak is a very different program. This, is, this evolved out of this uh, really bad experience with the Mughals, and decisions they made. Decisions they made because the Sikh religion came to a crossroads where they had to either totally withdraw from politics, in a sense the way the Buddhists did to some extent, or the Jain, totally withdraw from politics and just be a spiritual movement. Or, but they chose to go the other way. They chose to militarize, to become a political entity, a, a theocracy, a political entity 
uh, whose symbols were military symbols. Now the result, and by doing that, there, there's an old saying, I think from Chanakya, there's an old saying in India, that a king is respected in his kingdom, but a, a sage is respected all over the world. So one result of totally committing yourself to a regional political program is that you are not going to be a world religion. And so Sikhism did become a very powerful force in Punjab. And, and well, the next stage after Aurangzeb, after Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb just blew out the Mughal program completely because he was just such an idiot. He just blew out the program. After him, the British are going to step in because he, uh, Aurangzeb just destabilized India, destabilized the Mughal Empire, and uh, after that, the British are going to make their move. And so after this, after Aurangzeb, the battle is going to be with the Sikhs and the British. That's going to be a whole new story. But, it, but I wanted to make the point that uh, the Sikh religion did become very powerfully identified as a Punjabi religion. And it was very powerful in that sense, but Buddhism and Jainism made a different move. And they sort of became, world, well, not Jainism so much, but Buddhism sort of became a world religion. And so you can see these interesting, you know, different consequences based on different relationships between church and state. So I guess we'll end here. <laughs>